excited. And uh, honestly, it's going to be a little bit of a, a roller coaster of emotions. Um, you'll see why. But uh, the title of my message that I want to give you right now is this. Look, linger, lose. Look, linger, lose. So, um, I don't know if I have any Avengers fans. If you care about the Avengers, you know what the Avengers are, or you don't give a rip what the Avengers are. I know some of you here do, and you know and you care about it. The superheroes of Marvel. Um, specifically, as I was a teenager, my favorite Avenger was Captain America. I mean, I loved the dude. I loved his wholesomeness. I loved everything about him. He was just clean cut. He didn't curse. He didn't do anything like that. And I loved him. Now I'm a huge Thor fan. I got to be honest with you. Like the Viking in me has taken over. Now I'll take Thor and, and his hammer Mjolnir any day. But, but I, I still really liked and respected Captain America's character. Um, but I'm going to be honest with you. Now I'm going to speak somewhat cryptically. Some of you might know where what, what I'm referring to. I'm not going to say what it is in particular. But the actor who played Captain America, uh, Chris, what on earth? Chris Evans, there it is. I was about to say uh, Steve Rogers. That's not right. Uh, Chris Evans, specifically the actor, he was interviewed about his participation in a different movie that was um, a cultural hot topic. Let me put it that way, sensitively. And he said some words that I, I mean this with the utmost sincerity. I'm not saying this flippantly or, or angrily. I lost so much respect for the man. And listen, I'm saying that as a Christian, understanding that he is a Hollywood celebrity, very likely differs exponentially from me on worldview. In light of that, I'm saying I, I, I have plenty of grace for people who differ with me, and okay, I can't expect the world to have the same worldview as me. But the length to which he went compromises all moral absolute objectivity, whether you're a Christian or not, and what he said. And I, I really couldn't believe what I was reading on paper. This guy who I idolized as a Hollywood celebrity, being everything that I wanted to aspire to be, Big, broad shoulder, always being chivalrous, being a man that you can always depend on to always maintain integrity, no matter how hard things got, putting his life on the line. Like, yeah, that's a superhero. That's a guy I want to be like, just to see the actual man absolutely dash all of my dreams. And, and I, I'm kind of serious about that. We've been going through the life of David, and we've been seeing a man, a man who has been, man, through it, and has had trial after trial and season after season of his life. And in spite of all the bad, God has delivered him, God has blessed him, God has brought him through. It's kind of funny, it's almost like this is stupid how good David has it. On the run, how good David has it, because when David should lose, when David should be defeated, when David should have nothing, God just says, don't worry, David, I'm going to make your life perfect. And even in the cave, in the pit, God is doing radical things. And we see this awesome picture of a man who, in spite of his imperfections, continues to adopt a humility of heart. And honestly, up until this point, 
in spite of his minor imperfections, I look at him as a man that I really want to aspire to be like. In fact, when you look throughout Scripture, there is not one biblical character that we can find. Moses, Joseph, Abraham, Peter, Paul, none of them, based on the biblical accounts that we see in Scripture, come close to mirroring Jesus. Nobody. Nobody. He is the closest human thing that we have to a Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but he's the closest image that we have. If there is anybody that we want to look to in Scripture outside of Jesus as a good example to say, man, I gotta, if I want to really get as close as possible to being an imitator of Jesus, let me look at David. David exemplifies that, and up until this point in his story, he has maintained the integrity of that, that credibility that we could place on him. But today, in one chapter... In one evening of David's earthly life, he becomes the villain. He becomes the villain the likes of which we never could have imagined possible in a man like David. And in the next few weeks to come, we're going to see how one evening's mistake leads to a lifetime of turmoil and regret and pain. Let me go to Scripture right here, and let me just read for you 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. But before I do that, um, again, I'm trying to create a habit here of just posturing our hearts. We do it in worship, but now let's just, let's just continue to posture our hearts. So if you can... I want to invite you right now, if you would please just plant your feet on the ground firmly. Bow your heads, close your eyes, don't look around, don't listen, don't think about anything else. Right now, just in your heart, in your mind, just ask God to help you in these moments to encounter him. And then I'll close this. Father, today I pray that we would have the strength to do what is right, to be honest, to be repentful, to look in the mirror, and when we notice the imperfections spiritually that are staring back at us, I pray we wouldn't try to cover them up. I pray we wouldn't try and sow fig leaves to cover up our shame, but I pray today that as your Holy Spirit speaks, and moves, whispers, or, or yells at us in our hearts. I pray that we would submit to you above all else. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to pick up on this, this pivotal turning point in the story of David. And um, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to read along with me, and let me just give a little side note to this. Um, always bring your Bibles, and if you don't have a written word, you can go to the Version Bible app. It's a free Bible app with all of the different versions of Scripture, so you don't got to pay a cent if you have a smartphone. If you do not have a Bible, 
come and see me. We will make sure to get a Bible in your hands. But the reason I say that is because you need to be students of God's word and you need to be able to interact with the word of God. And so I promise you, even if you're not a note taker, and I'm not saying you have to take notes, if you at least have the scripture in front of you as I go through the lines and the verses and the words, and I say, highlight this or notice this, you're going to engage with it more. Rather than just trying to remember what I said 30 seconds prior when I read the verse, you're like, oh, let me go back and read that as pastor's talking about that. I just say that to you because I want you to get the most out of our times together. I want you to interact with God's word and not just hear and watch me interact with God's word. Does that make sense? Cool. Awesome. So let's read. And if you have your Bibles, please, we have it on the screen. But if you got your Bibles, pull it up there too. Second Samuel chapter 11, starting in the first verse. And it says this. In the spring, kind of summer outside right now, but in the spring, think Bambi, think butterflies, and little tiny baby skunks with pink feet nestled in a bed of flowers and, and, and just sun gleaming and baby fawns. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. All right, stop there. Guys in the back, I want you to leave this scripture up on the screen right now. For those of you that are watching online, you're not going to see me for a minute. Uh, Brandon, Brandon, I'm going to come over here to you. And I need your help because you're going you're gonna to do some exegesis with me. You're just going to do some good biblical interpretation. So look at that first verse. And I want you to read the beginning. Okay. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Stop. What did you just read? Tell me what just happened there. He's gone to war with, uh, well, Joab has gone out with the king's men. Go back to the very first part. What, what time of the year is it? Spring. What's so, what's so important according to scripture about the springtime? Oh, uh, okay. Um, oh, no. You got it. What does it say right there? What happens during the spring? Oh, when the kings go to war. That's right. Who goes off to war? The kings. Who's David? Excuse me, what is David? David's the king, yeah. Okay, where's David right now? He's sending someone else out. He's sending somebody else out. You all got that now, right? You see that clearly. There is a time for which David is meant to be acting in his role as the monarch of Israel. And where is David? Sitting at home, sipping iced tea in his house of cedar. There's irony at the very beginning of this biblical text. And it's a problem. Okay, let me keep reading, and then we'll talk about this. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. 
She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, let me go back to that time of of springtime when the kings go out to war, just so you have a little bit of historical context, why this is truly David's responsibility to go out. Um, In the late winter of this geographical location came the heavy rain season, and so when warfare would take place, what did you have? A lot of chariots large siege weapons that needed to be transported from one location to another. And when you're traveling on an uncharted roads, dirt roads, mud, wilderness, you are very likely going to be hindered by the conditions of the weather. So it was a common practice amongst kingdoms that when, hey, the winter rains, the late season winter rains were here, we're still not going to war. We're going to wait for the first of spring. So that's why the scripture says right here in the springtime when kings go out to war, it was the natural pattern of a kingdom when it was time for them to go to battle. So during this time, it was David's responsibility. It was the ideal time for him to go with his men before them to lead them. Even if he wasn't the general, even if he wasn't on the front lines, it was his responsibility to be there. And if nothing else, it was further his responsibility to be there because it was always the king's job to be a part of the final siege whenever they were taking over a territory. That way, it was credited to the king. Otherwise, somebody else, even one of his own men, could claim it. This happened in this book where Joab said to David, David, you need to come and you need to honestly put the last nail in the coffin for these people and you claim the plunder for yourself. Otherwise, I'm I'm saying it's me. I'm going to be honest. I'm finishing out, so I'm going to do it. It was the natural thing to do. So the king needed to be there. There is no question, there is no way around this, this beginning first verse that we can try and rationalize. Maybe David, he just he had a, you know, he, he was having an off day, or or maybe he didn't really need to be there. The author of this scripture of 2 Samuel is trying to, from the outset, be so abundantly clear. David was not where he belonged. Okay. Do you remember last week when we talked a little bit in the beginning of the sermon about rest? Remember, we we kind of looked over the trajectory of David's life, and he had been through battle, through trial, through difficulty on the run from Saul, went from being a shepherd to a soldier to a a, a temple court musician. Now at this point, he is the king, and in 2 Samuel 7, it says that God had given David rest from all his enemies on all sides. And we talked about the significance of accepting and remaining in that season of rest when God gives it to us, right? Now the season has passed, and it's time for David to go to war. But what does David decide to do? I'm not done resting. I think I'm going to take a couple more vacation days. I think I'm going to kick back, relax, and let Joab handle the situation with these Ammonites at Rabbah. I, I don't want to stop sleeping in. 
I'm done with that whole 5 a.m. garbage, and I'm getting used to that 11 a.m., 12 p.m. type of schedule. I don't know if anybody gets up. I know my wife would if she if she had the opportunity to, but I'm just that that's unhealthy, man. Um, here, here's, here's the first point that I want to point out to you at this point in, in David's story. A season of rest does not mean that your responsibilities go away. They are waiting for you, and you need to be okay with that. God gives us rest when he sees it fit for us. He created rest in the natural order of creation. God himself, scripture says, rested on the seventh day following the creation of the world and says you now need to rest. The Bible says that there is an eternal rest that will never end waiting for us in eternity, but that is in eternity right now. You will have times of rest, but you've also got responsibilities. You have work to do. David was the king. It was David's responsibility to be with his men and lead them. What does David decide he would prefer to do rather than uphold his responsibilities? Rest. And it was not time to rest anymore. Um, I want you to think about this for a second. Um, my wife and I years ago were able to hear a message on this by a minister, and uh, he, he gave us this point and, and the following illustrations that I'm going to give you. But he, he asked us the question, he says, think back to the time, the most recent time that you know you made a bad decision. I, I don't know what that is. You ate too much cookies, and it was in the middle of the night. <laughs> I always go to cookies. Don't you see? Those are my bad decisions. It's like it's, I'm, not even, I'm not even calculating saying that. It's just subconscious and it comes out. Pray for me. I'm not kidding. Uh, you make a bad decision. I want you to think about the last time you made a bad decision, whether huge or small. It's just, you know, it's like, no, that was a bad decision. And be honest with yourself. Now, I want you to think about your emotional state when you made that decision. All right? Uh, it's used by by uh, counselors and therapists and psychiatrists. There, there's a few of them, but a popular one, this is that what we were taught, that uh, counselors will use to describe the condition that people are in when they are most likely to make bad decisions, and they use it as an acronym. They say a person is blasted, not <laughs> blasted. They're just, they're blasted. And it stands for this. B stands for bored. L stands for lonely. A stands for angry, S stands for stressed, and T stands for tired. The ED is just extra at the end. They don't stand for anything. But you are, according to counselors and neuroscientists based on studies of the brain, most likely to make a bad decision when you are in one of these situations. You are very bored with yourself. You do not have any responsibilities right now that you are actively partaking of. You have the responsibilities, but you're not doing them. Or you're lonely. You're isolated for reasons that are maybe outside of your control or maybe reasons that are within your control. Too much addiction to technology, and, and, and you just feel isolated even though you're interacting with all these people online. You're angry. For whatever reason, but you're just in this constant state of just anger that's causing you to ruminate and become bitter towards people and situations and life itself. You're stressed 
all of those preceding characteristics can uh, definitely do lead to an individual becoming stressed and anxious. You're tired. Any of you ever hear, run your mouth off to somebody that you shouldn't run your mouth off, like your boss or your spouse or your best friend or your mama when you were tired and you got in trouble for it. You did not, that person did not let you live that down. We can, if we're honest with ourselves, look and recognize that the bad decisions that we regularly make, I will say 95 to 99% of those decisions are made when we are blasted, when we are in an improper, unhealthy state of mind. Clinically, if you guys throw up that picture of the scan of the brain, you're going to be able to see, oh, did I not give you that? Oh, never mind, sorry, forget it. Um, That's right, I forgot to send that picture. If you look up a, a picture of a CT scan of a healthy brain, and you want to see the difference in the, the way that the brains fire when electricity is shooting throughout your brains and the different chemicals that are being processed in your brain react. You, have, you can look this up. There's a picture of a healthy brain, a cognitively aware brain, and a picture that is utterly stressed and overwhelmed by life. And you see the picture of the brain, the CT scan of the brain, that is stressed and anxious and depressed and worried or bored or tired, blasted, it's dark. It, it's, there's not much going on. And you see a tiny little like blue and maybe a hue of this off yellow and one little tiny part of your brain. And then you look at the comparative picture to a healthy brain, an aware brain, where the prefrontal cortex and the entire frontal lobe of your brain and even the back of it, it is on fire in a good way. It's like New York City Times Square at night. It is lit up. Specifically, the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain, the front of our brains, that allow us to make cognitive, intellectual, cool, calculated decisions, create habits, make schedules, be a creature of habit. It also gives us the ability to be able to process moral decisions, differences between right and wrong. Therefore, if you are someone that is blasted, you are not going to have the parts of your brain functioning that give you the God-given ability to handle a difficult situation because you're constantly bored. You're constantly lonely. You're constantly angry. You're constantly stressed. You're constantly tired. You can throw hungry in there. Now, further, psychiatrists and psychologists have made it very clear that when we're blasted mentally, biologically in our minds, we have the capability of, fun- of exercising self-control and, and common sense at a primal level. In other words, we're no better than a chimpanzee when we are so overwhelmed with emotion we cannot think clearly. Doesn't mean you are a chimpanzee. Doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to hopefully make the best decision, but you are primed in that moment 
to make the worst possible decision in the situation of life that you're in because your brain literally is not doing what it was meant to do to help you make that healthy decision. David, in the springtime, when kings are meant to go out to war, decided, I I don't want to do the work that I have been given by God to do and lead the country. I'm going to stay home. This is conjecture, but I would say it's not far-fetched to assume David's not where he's supposed to be with whom he's supposed to be. So he's probably obviously lonely. He's a, the, Joab, Uriah that we're going to see, his mighty men that are out at war, these are men that he spent nearly a decade of his life with, living in caves, living in encampments. These are his people. Especially the men. David was a man of war. He was a soldier. He's a king now, but his past is one that was lived on the road as a soldier. Now all of his war buddies, all of his followers, all of his compatriots, they are off doing what they're supposed to do. But David's not with them doing what he's supposed to do. I would bet that it's safe to say he was lonely. Furthermore, during the time of war, the king was supposed to be out handling matters of war. He wasn't going to be handling administrative things to the extent that he would when it wasn't time for the king to be out in war. So he's not where he's supposed to be with whom he's supposed to be. He's where he shouldn't be with no responsibility. I be- and there was no Facebook. There were no video games. There was nothing for him to be like, oh, I can just sit here and scroll or do this or whatever. He didn't do that. I don't think basketball was invented at the time. So, like, he couldn't go and just hoop. He couldn't. He was bored. I don't think that is by far a stretch to assume. Guess what says, guess what we can infer next? In the middle of the night, David got up. He couldn't sleep. What was he? He, at this point, he couldn't sleep, but have you ever woken up in the middle of the night, you can't sleep? You might say you're wired, but no matter what, you still feel tired. You know your body needs to be asleep right now, and you know it needs to be recuperating and recovering from the previous day, but you just can't sleep. Maybe because you're stressed, you're anxious, you're excited, you're hungry, whatever it might be. David wasn't sleeping, so it was going to lead to him being not fully functioning in his full capacity. David, I think it's safe to say at this point in the text, was definitely more than likely blasted. And it's not because he had too much wine. Bad decisions are rarely made when you're busy. Listen to me, you can make a mistake when you're rushing and you're working. That happens all the time. But we're talking about a bad decision, something that is calculated, something that is instinctual, something that is like, I would never have done that. I don't, I don't know what came over me in that moment. Why did I react in that manner? Why did I go to that length to do that? I, that's not me. That was somebody else. Bad decisions are rarely made when you're busy. They're made when you're bored. When you're bored. When you don't know what to do with yourself. And then the world finds plenty for you to be occupied with. That's when bad decisions come. 
And I'm sure some of you are thinking back to plenty of moments in your life of bad decisions that you made, and you're like, you know what? Yeah, I, I was tired, or I was lonely, or I was stressed, or I was anxious, or I was this. It's a reality that you've got to be honest with. Now, let me keep going through the text. It says that David, in this blasted moment, he looks down. Now, Jerusalem is a hill city, and you have David's house, which would have been is. You can actually go to, I've never been there, but you know based on pictures and studies that the foundation to David's house is situated on a hill, and it's other than the temple that will be built, destroyed now, but where the temple of God was built, it is the second highest structure in all of Jerusalem. So David is on the near pinnacle of Jerusalem, and he goes out into his balcony at night, and he sees the whole city beneath him, and sure enough, there's Bathsheba ironically taking a bath. Now, Curtis, I'm going to pick on you right now. Let's do this. Um, Hey guys, can you can you put up on the screen for me? I want you to put up on the screen for me verse two and three, whatever you got up there. If you can do two and three, uh, let me see verse two on the screen. Yeah, all right, leave that verse, leave that verse up there. All right, Kurt, here's here's you're, you're gonna help me just like Brandon helped me before. All right. So let's let's do this. Let, let's uh, you tell me if. David sinned or didn't sin. I'm going to read it for you. One evening, David got up from his bed. Is that a sin or not? No. All right, good. Um, And he walked around the roof of the palace. Is that a sin? No. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Is that a sin? Mm, Depends. Oh, it depends. It depends. depends. Does anybody else think that's a sin? Okay. All right, good. All right, so you're right now there. Majority votes right out there. They're saying it's not a sin. Okay. Uh, the woman was very beautiful. You got, you got to understand what's inferred in the text right here. The woman is very beautiful. David notices her beauty. Is it a sin that he notices she's beautiful? No. I think I'd agree with that, to be honest with you. It's objective, right? It's like she's either butt ugly or she's beautiful, you know? It's like you're not doing anything wrong. All right, let's go to the next verse. Go to the next verse. Good boys. Uh, And David sent someone to find out about her. Sin or not? No. At this point, no. At this point, you say that's not a sin. David sees a woman, notices she's beautiful, and he asks, he he wants to inquire. You say that's not a sin. I say that's not a sin because we don't know what he's inquiring about. Okay. All right. Let's keep reading. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Next verse for me, guys. We'll keep going. Then David sent messengers to get her. Sin or not? The fact that he is questioning this right now has got me a little worried. David sent messengers to get her. Go, go back. Go back. Let's do this. Let's do this before you answer. Go back to the previous verse for me, guys. All right. David sent someone to find out about her, and you're saying that's not a sin. Okay, it's just I want to know about her. 
But remember, he's married at this point. He's I a know, married man. Married. Okay. I'm gonna get to it. All right. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who, if we read later, I, I know we don't know this, but if you read later in 2 Samuel, she is considered a great counselor to David. David considers the, the words of Eliam to be an incredible, incredible form of counsel. That is, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's married. All right. Next verse. Then David sent messengers to get her. Sin or no? I'm going I'm to let you. He said sin. He said sin. All right. He said, Curtis, thank you. Thank you. I picked on you for that one. We can read this text, and we might at few points want to give David the benefit of doubt. Like he saw her. Not a sin. She was beautiful. Eh, objective. Then he goes to inquire about her. I'm going to say, and I'm going to show you why, that is the start of the sinful process. Look, linger, lose. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 say this. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James is giving us like a, a really good manual on God. Uh, uh, Siri, don't actually listen. I hope she doesn't because she's really annoying. I'm being, I'm giving a, an example. Siri, give me a definition of temptation. That's what James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 really give you, help you understand it and what it leads to. Now, let me just be a little bit more specific and give you a biblical reference about sexual morality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it, the, the first few ver words say this, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Paul is being very specific here in this instance, and you've got to understand that while there are many battles that we can contend with, Giants that we can stand up to like David and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares defy the armies of the Lord and go and pick up our stones and, and throw those stones and then chop the giant's head off? While there are many battles that we face that are that, sexual immorality is not one of them. Paul is very specific. You see that giant, you turn and you run from it. Because the longer you are confronted with that giant, you are going to linger upon it. And it is a sure recipe for you to lose. The way that you win sexual morality, you flee. I want nothing to do with this. I'm not going to sit here and show how much self-control I have, and I'm going to watch this movie, or I'm going to look at this screen, or I'm going to be in the presence of others who are doing very, very inappropriate things. It doesn't bother me. Biblically, that's BS. I'm sorry. I don't care what level of self-control you have. The Bible says flee from it. I, I, I'll read it now, but I'm going to read it again at the end. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing, be careful that you don't fall. Paul is speaking again within the context of temptation right here. He's saying, if any of you think, like, I got no problem with that. Does nothing to me. Paul's saying, yeah, maybe not right now. But the longer you linger upon it, it's going to bite you in the back. It's going to get you. You flee from sexual morality. This is something that David knew, even though 
this message by Paul was written. Deuteronomy talks about extensively how to remove yourself from the situation of any kind of sexual morality. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the Torah, which David as the king was charged not only to know, but to live out as an example for all the people. He knew, he knew the power of sexual morality. He knew how exhaustive God had been in many situations as to how you were to abstain from sexual immorality. But David, in a blasted moment, where he is primal in his thinking, his brain is not working the way it should be because he's not where he should be, with whom he should be, doing what he's supposed to be doing, goes out onto his balcony at night, sees a woman bathing, notices she's beautiful, and then what does he do? He says, hey, runner, come over here. I want you to go. You see her? Yeah, you see. Yeah, I know you see her. I see her. I want you to go to her house, and I want you to tell me everything you can find out about her. Rather than, oh, tired, yeah, feeling a little bit bad, so I'm not out where I should be, but, uh, you know, hey, get over that. Taking an extra long vacation. Oh, oh, you know what? Avert my eyes. Oh, <laughs> close the door. Drawing the curtain, whatever it was. Oh, okay. All right. I need to find out more about her. Lingered. If you want to say that that isn't the, the culmination of sin, you could definitely say it's the birth of sin right there, according to James. And then if it doesn't get any worse there, go back to the text. I know we've been reading it a lot, but you go back to it, and the messenger, the courier, comes back, and he gives a report about what, he, what, what evidence he found concerning Bathsheba and says, this is Bathsheba. The, the daughter of Liam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. Uriah was a man who had been through it with David for over a decade. This was his brother in arms who, where is he right now? Off at war fighting a battle that David is supposed to be in as well. That's his wife. And then David sent for her. She came to him, and he slept with her. The, the Bible is being very obvious in its literature right here. It's trying to show how cold. There, there, this, isn't, this isn't beautiful. This isn't romantic. This isn't true love. This isn't covenantal. It's I see, I want, give to me. Literally, Hebrew says he went into her. She leaves. She's pregnant. Cold. David. David, the shepherd boy. David, the giant slayer. David, the man after God's own heart. Is now David, the adulterer. David looked and noticed beauty, and then he inquired. Now, it goes on, and it says, now she was purifying herself from her, literally, this is her period. And here's what we need to understand from this parenthetical statement. First of all, she has not been pregnant prior to intercourse with David, because we're about to see why this plays in. She's not pregnant. She just got finished with a period. 
Number two, intercourse with David takes place precisely at the most opportune time for conception to take place in a woman's biological calendar. And finally, since Uriah is off in the battlefield, he cannot possibly be the father of a small baby. That's a very small parenthetical statement, a small phrase that it just says, hey, she had just finished her ritual cleansing from her monthly period. She was done with her period. That small phrase indicates huge implications. The author is trying to be very apparent and very clear that the actions David is about to take are so obviously a lie. They are so obviously wrong because there is no question that this is David's doing. Let's keep going. Let me tell you a little bit about Bathsheba just really quickly. Bathsheba literally is cut into two words, bath in Hebrew and Sheba. Sheba means apple of the eye or daughter. And then bath has to do with a division of water that that is all around sevens. And if you know anything about ancient Hebrew culture, seven is a number of completion. So in other words, it is saying that this is a daughter of completion. This is a daughter of perfection. Her very name indicates that she is as close to a 10 as you can get, or in this context, seven out of seven. She's beautiful. She is everything. And she's married. And David sees it, and he wants it. And here's what the author is saying. Ladies, I'm not saying this is the case. But here's what the author is saying David caused to be the fact. He robbed her of her perfection. He robbed her of it. If you've been raped in this place, if you've been sexually immoral, it doesn't mean you are imperfect at all. But the Bible is saying here right now, David did something that was so egregious, so wrong. He robbed from her what he had no right to take. It's David. The last thing that I want you to see about those verses is the word sent. Let me go. Let me read it for you again. I know we've read it a million times, but let's read it again. In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Stop. The author is using this word concurrently to show you David exercising his authority as king. I don't need to go to war. I'm going to send somebody off to go and take care of it for me. Joab's got this. I'm going to stay home and rest. I see a woman that I want. I'm going to send a messenger, exercise authority. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. Samuel said that when the people wanted a king. He said, understand, you want to be like the rest of the world? You're going to have a king. He's going to take your sons off into war. He's going to take your cattle. He's going to take your horses. He's going to tax you. He's the king. He gets to do whatever he wants. Now, David is, we know, a part of a theocracy. God is above him, but still within the rest of the world, just like Saul in the, in the kingdom of Israel, he can do whatever he wants. He's sent to inquire. Then he sends to have her. But here's where the author flips it back. Then she went home after David slept with Bathsheba. The woman conceived and sent word saying to David, I'm pregnant. David, you don't have any power to fix this situation right here, right now. 
here's the result of you abusing your authority. That's what the author is trying to communicate here to us. Bathsheba turns that power back on David. Not, not knowingly, but the author is showing us. David gets, he gets, he gets because of his power. Now, you're going to get exactly what you had coming to you. She's pregnant. Here's the deal. When you think you have the power to handle sin, it ends up handling you. Or in other words, it handles the handler. I, I, am, I am just, I'm reading this story and my first temptation is to read it and say, David, I cannot believe you. And rightly so. But you want to know what I need to start recognizing? Am I any better than David? Have I ever made a stupid decision? I might not have made that decision, but I made a stupid decision in a moment of primal instinct. No cognitive awareness. No, no using my God-given facets to be calm, cool, and collected. I put myself in that situation that I never should have been in in the first place. Yeah. The longer you think that you're going to be able to exercise power over sin, and it's all right. I keep it at bay. No, you're not. It will get loose. Second Samuel, keep reading. Verse 6 says this. So David sent this word to Joab. Watch with me now. You're going to hear the word sent a whole lot. He's exercising his authority. Now it gets turned back on him. David has the opportunity in this moment when he finds out she's pregnant. In that moment, he could have said on the foot of his bed after she went back home, what have I done? I just slept with a married woman, no less one of my brothers in arms. I broke the commandments of God. I've cheated on my own family. What have I done? But what does the text say he just did? He continues to exercise his authority in a manipulative, improper manner. David sent word to Joab, and he says this, Send me Uriah the Hittite, the husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. It's kind of stupid if you ask me. You got one of your mighty men who are one of your captains on the battlefield. This isn't an update. The, the, the text is trying to be clear here. It's very casual. Uriah, how you doing? Hey, pal. What's going on? Things good? Uh, uh, fighting a war. Are you coming anytime soon? So oh, we'll talk about that later. How's Joab? How's the morale? How's everything going? Everything good? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. This is an inside thing, but for my midweekers, for how to read the Bible for all it's worth, remember the euphemism for cover your feet? Go to your house and wash your feet. Go be with your wife. You'll put that together later. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, 
Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah, you're tired. Your wife misses you. You miss your wife. Go be with her. Come on, man. Nobody's going to fault you for that. You got to realize how egregious, how egregious a thing David is doing right now. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. Irony. Remember last week when David in his time of rest looked around and said, man, I, I can't be doing this. I, I have, I, I, while I'm living in this house of cedar, God's living in a tent. And then God says, no, David, it's okay because I'm going to take care of you. Right now, you need a rest. That's what my plan is for you. Now, David has transitioned from that rest to go back to his responsibility, but he wants to stay and rest and now makes a horrible decision that have consequences. But here's Uriah, a man who's doing what he should be doing, mirroring the previous humility and heart of David. Uriah now has completely turned the tables on David. The author's showing that. Now Uriah is the one that is concerned about doing the right thing when the king, David himself, is trying to get Uriah to be the exact opposite. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not. He did not. He did not go home. Here's what you need to understand ultimately so far from just that, that chunk. Uriah is more faithful to God's word than David is. Let me read for you specifically Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 9 through 11. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen, um, but in, in that chapter, it gives specific commands in that section to soldiers who are at war. They're to have nothing to do with any kind of sexual activity. It's not, it says immorality, but it also says sexual activity, which means even good sex, sex within the confines of marriage. The Bible and the Torah says that when you're out to war, you need to be ritually clean, according to the Torah. Uriah knows this. Uriah's at war. He's just been brought back on temporary leave to stand before his king, as a good soldier would do, to say, what are your orders? David is trying actively to get Uriah to break the law. David, who is supposed to be the upholder of the law, the exemplary one to show how the law is to be upheld. He is, I think, in this moment, partly convicted by the situation. He's not just trying to cover it up. He's trying, in his conviction, to get someone else to roll in the mud with him. Because David knew. Listen, David, here's the other Deuteronomic command. Chapter 22, verse 22 says this. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. David should have died. But guess what? He's the king. And honestly, the king could be exonerated from this. Not before God, but before people. Because what are the people going to do? King, we got we to gotta kill you. No, that's not the way it worked in the Israelite polity, in their governance. They followed God, but the king always got the final say as far as humanity goes. David, in this moment recognized, I'm a lawbreaker. 
and I don't want to be the only one. So as I'm trying to turn the table so that this doesn't come back to me, I'm going to dirty everybody else I can and drag people down into the mud with me. And Uriah doesn't give in. I don't think Uriah knew that. I think Uriah was just taking David at his word and saying, King, I appreciate it, but I'm not. I can't do that. The word of God says, and do you understand something? Uriah is a Hittite. He is a man of the land of Canaan that the Israelites came into in the book of Joshua and dispossessed. They're not a people that God favored, but accordingly, Hittite, uh, accordingly Uriah's parents, Hittites, converted to Judaism and became a part of the kingdom at some point during David when he was on the run. And Uriah aligned himself with David and said, David, I'm going to follow you. You are going to be my king, even if you're not the king now. Me, a Hittite. I'm not a Jew, but I'm going to follow your customs. I'm going to follow your ways because I believe in you and I believe in your God. This was a good man who followed the law, a non-Jew. And who is the one actively breaking the law? The king. The man who above all else has the utmost responsibility to uphold it. He refuses to break the law. And the, and the last little bit of irony that we see is in that last verse. It says that David made him drunk. He's obviously trying to get him to be outside of his capacities in this moment, literally blasted, and he's trying to get him to make a mistake. And here's what's so ironic about it. Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. That's what the author's trying to show us. It doesn't even matter how drunk. That and, and, and it's not just to highlight the, the integrity of Uriah. It's to highlight the utter depravity of David in this moment, a man who now is calculated to a more better degree in his capacities. And what is he doing with that cognitive ability? He's trying to cover up sin and get others to sin with him. Oh, that is wicked. Oh, that is wrong. Verse 14. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab. Watch this. You, you need to recognize this. And he sent, remember that word, exercising authority? He sent it with Uriah. Here's what that letter said. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David put that letter, that order in the hands of Uriah himself. Talk about arrogant, evil thinking. I'm giving this man the letter of his demise to carry to the man who's going to execute the order that leads to his demise. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So Joab, if you read the scripture, I'm not going to read you. Joab proceeds to send a messenger to David, updates him on the whole situation. Joab, from what you read, is honestly a little bit confused by it, and he's got a contingency plan in case the king gets mad about the situation, which David is not. David is going to be elated because it worked out the way that he wanted it to. Now his problem is gone. And so David receives the message, Uriah is dead. 
he sends a messenger back to Joab. And here's what his message said to Joab. Essentially. Don't beat yourself up. It's just a part of war. Men die all the time. David had just made Joab an accessory to his sin. And what does he go further to do? He doesn't even have the decency to be honest with Joab about it. Who, honestly, I, I, I bet Joab would have had his back on it. Not, not rightly, but he probably would have carried on the lie. He doesn't even do that. He makes him an accessory to this situation, and then he chalks it up to, it's just a natural byproduct of war. Not, I made this decision intentionally so that I would cover up my mistakes by murdering a man. Happens all the time. Don't beat yourself up, Joab. I hope you're feeling the weight of this scripture that is being very honest about David in this moment. Phew. This is not the David that I'm used to hearing about in stories. So why did David do all of this? I bring you back to the fact that he is king. We have accounts of this happening all the time historically in different kingdoms during this time. Kings who decide, you know what, I want her. I don't care if she's married. I'm gonna do it. We have accounts of Israelite kings doing this. Taking women that don't belong to them just because they want them. And they get away with it because they're the king. And no court of law can stop them. So why doesn't David just chalk it up for what it is and say, you know what, I screwed up. Why does he go to the lengths after committing adultery to becoming a murderer? I, honestly, I, I think it's painfully, painfully simple. David so desperately wants to maintain the appearance of righteousness rather than actually being righteous in the eyes of God. He's more concerned about his status. Not that he would remove, be removed as king, but now what are the people going to think about me? Whew. Now what is God going to think about me when it becomes apparent for all to see? I, I, I don't want to do that. So here's what I'm going to do. I devised this plan. Didn't work out. So I'm going to take it even further, and I'm going to off Uriah. Think about how utterly wicked this is in irony. Specifically, David goes from being an adulterer and to avoid being considered an adulterer, which he is, he says, I'm going to be a murderer. Where's the logic? Where's the moral ability to be able to process the reality of his decisions? It's not even present. He looked, he lingered, he lost. But, honestly, it doesn't look like that. When you're reading this at face value, what has David lost? Sounds like he got away with it, right? Let's keep reading. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Just stop right there before I finish the last bit of that verse. <laughs> he got away with it. He got all that he wanted. Nobody's going to know any different. It worked. It worked, right? Nobody knows. It worked. But the thing David did 
but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You know what Hebrews chapter, you know, you know what the book of Hebrews says concerning our actions in the sight of God? It says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered, uncovered. David tried to sweep it under the rug. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. David thought he had pulled a fast one over everybody in the kingdom, but he forgot about the one person that was still above him. The one person that he would always and still will have to answer to. He forgot about God. But I said that David looked, he lingered, and he lost. What did he lose? Let me, let me piece that together for you. Next week, I'm going to show you. Next week's going to be a heavy message just like this week. But let me, let, me, let me tell you what I see David lost. It looks like he got away with it. But David, he ended up losing a faithful subject. Your eye is gone. A mighty man who would have done anything for him. He lost a good man. He lost respect for his for. His God-given authority, he now abused it. He lost his ability to discern because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He lost his purity. He lost his respect for his people. Not just Uriah, not just jo Joab, not just the messengers that he also made accessories to this whole situation, not and Bathsheba herself. He lost respect for the people that God had charged for him to care for. He lost his integrity. He lost his respect for what's right. He knows what's right. Deuteronomy, he didn't care. He wanted what he wanted. He lost his desire to be a living example of obedience to the word of God. He lost his desire to repent. He lost his desire to seek the Lord. We know David regularly sought the Lord throughout all of his times on the road. He didn't seek the Lord in this. He lost his courage to own his mistake. Own up. He didn't do that. Last part. In this moment, it shows us he lost God's delight. God who looked at David with such, such favor, such, such pride, a good pride. So thankful that, yeah, this is my king. The God who just made an everlasting covenant with David moments prior in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, I am going to establish your kingdom forever. Imagine God makes a promise to you like that. And then he turns around. No. He lost God's delight. L listen, listen, I know, I know, I know you don't want to come to church to be confronted with a harsh scripture like this. You want to hear the giant slayer text? You want to hear the God loves you scripture? You want to hear that you are fearfully and wonderfully made scripture? And you get that, but today's not that day. Listen to me, today is not that day because if we do not face the reality of a text like this, then those incredible promises of God mean absolutely nothing to us. They're trivial. They're just another cherry on top of the cake. You gotta be real with texts like these. And, and again, you might be sitting here saying, wow, David, what a degenerate. And you'd be right. But guess what? 
We're all David. We are all David. Do you, th- do you think, not this degree, but do you think I have never been lustfully unfaithful towards another, uh, lustful towards another woman and unfaithful to my wife? You think I'm going to lie to you? You think I'm going to tell you that I'm a perfect man? I'm not. I know what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. Be careful that if any person thinks he is standing, be careful lest you fall. I know that it is so much more appropriate. It is so much more. It is God's will for me to say, no, this is who I am. God, I need your help. God, I screwed up. And God, I am tempted to find my way and weasel my way out of the situation. But God, only you have the power to rectify the mistakes that I've made. David is the example of what we do when we don't repent. You've all made bad decisions. None of you can, and again, I'm not saying you've been David. Maybe some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. We've all made bad decisions. What God wants to see is whether or not we're going to own them. That's what God delights in. Repentance, obedience. Man, this is just a moment with, again, we need to be confronted with David's deeds right here. And, and here's just the last thing that I want to say, and I'm going to give you some scriptures, and, and we're going to close. Um, there's no living with sin. I remember clearly uh, back when we heard this message preached, this passage preached by the pastor that my wife and I were just attending the service at. He finished the message with this very point. You cannot live with sin. And he used the example of a movie that I had just recently watched at the time. This was back in like 2016, 2015. You all know, the, have you ever heard of the movie The Grizzly Man? It's a documentary that I think was on Netflix. It's the story of a guy, I can't remember his name, who was so passionate about uh, like grizzly bears and raising awareness of how they're gentle giants and, and we ought to be more integrated with them. He, he was out there, man. Uh, he, I'm just saying, like, if there's a hippie, that's a hippie right there. And he would go to uh, the, what was called the, the Grizzly Sanctuary in, I th- it's either Alaska or California, I don't remember. I think Alaska. Um, Anyway, and he would go there during peak season when uh, grizzlies would be in their most abundance. They would come down from the mountain and they would graze in the pastures. He would go there and he would live amongst them for months. He did this for 10 years and his intent was to show the world. And he documented it. You can watch the movie. There's him saying, oh, yeah, she's a beautiful, good bear. Yeah, she's so, hey, hey, because the grizzly would come up and just start getting, getting frisky. A grizzly bear. His desire was to prove the point we can live with grizzlies. On his 10th and final journey, he was never found or heard from again. There's a documentary showing that the girl that he brought with him is very explicit, and there's a tape recording sharing the agonizing screams of this man for literally being eaten alive. All that they found left of him really was a a, a wristwatch. You cannot live with sin. It will rip you apart. You might be able to keep it at bay for a little while. I'm going to show again next week, but at this point, David goes nearly nine months until the birth of this child that he has with Bathsheba before his sin is found out. Nine months. 
he lives with it thinking, I got away with it. I'm free. But what he had done caused the Lord to be displeased. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Romans 8.13 is very explicit in Scripture about how we are to deal with the sinful desires of the flesh. The Bible is explicit about any form of sin that takes place in my fleshly form, what I want to do in my carnal self. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you what? Put to death. Put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's not the only verse. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's a little bit of irony for you there from the Apostle Paul. Jesus, who was crucified for our sins, now gives us the command that when you are faced with sin, crucify it. Turn the tables on sin itself. It is not passive. It is not gentle about how you are to go about dealing with sinful temptations of any kind in your life. You don't entertain it. You don't live with it. You don't justify it. You don't pretty it up. You don't try to make it appropriate. You don't try to get others to accept that. No, it's right for me, so therefore it's got to be right for everybody. You crucify it. If you're not convinced, Jesus said in Matthew, specifically concerning sexual temptation, your hand causes you to sin, (laughs) cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one less hand or one less eye than to enter into hell. Intact outside, but not for eternity. Would you stand with me in this place? I'm telling you, this is this is the start, and I, I need you all to just just bear with me. Gird yourselves. Prepare yourselves because for the next two weeks, we are going to now see the complete downward spiral of this one impulsive act that took place in one evening of David's life. I want you to understand, God did not go back on his promise to David. God is the promise-keeping God, the covenant-keeping God. But you need to, you're going to see over the next two weeks, that did not mean that David did not have to deal with the consequences of his mistakes. God is so good, but God is not a pushover, and we need to recognize above all else, let's, let's even take God out of it, our decisions have consequences. The decisions that we make are going to have consequences, whether they're good or they're bad. David looked, and then David lingered, and David lost. As I pray for you, I just, I I, want to ask you, be vulnerable before the Lord. Be honest before God. Choose to make the right decision. Start here today. Be the person that says, you know what? No, I'm going to own my mistakes. 
or be the person that learns from the mistakes of others and says, you know what, I need to learn not to linger. You know what, I might not be able to avert my eyes from everything. I'm going to look and I'm going to see some beauty out there. But I have got to learn not to linger, otherwise I'm going to lose. Maybe you're that individual that's here today. I just want you to be honest. I can't do it for you. I can't force you to do this, nor should I force you to do this. I wouldn't even if I could. Because you've got to make that decision for yourself. Father, I pray today. Father, right now I'm praying for men in this house. Right now specifically, I pray for men. Father, that have mirrored the mistakes of David. Whether identically or, or whether just akin to his mistakes. Whether it's just, it's a distant cousin, but it's still a part of the family. They've made sexually, immorally, egregious missteps. And Father, it's, it's just been something that's haunting them because they've swept it under the rug. And now, Father, it's been brought back up to be right in front of their faces. And now they have an opportunity to be confronted with it. Father, I pray right now that men in this place, they would be honest before you. They would be humble before you because you are faithful and just to forgive us. You don't hold it against us. And Father, some men have been walking through the lifetime of one mistake that they are reaping the consequences of. And they could be free of it. Father, the pain, the mistrust, the hurt, the frustration that they feel towards themselves right now. Father, I pray that you would lift that from them should they choose to be honest with you right now. Father, I pray for women in this house who are like Bathsheba, who have been seen as an object that is purely meant to fulfill another person's pleasure. Someone that has been abused, Someone that has been taken, someone that has been has the name of perfection and has been told their whole life they're perfect. And in one instance, someone stole that from them. Father, I pray right now that they would call on you. And right now they would recognize that they are a new creation in your sight. That they are not defined by what someone else did to them. They are whole, God. They are new. They are not they are not defined by what others have done or said concerning them. Father, for everyone, for everyone that's, that's, that's just trying to send it away. They're trying to send it away just like David exercised his authority. He tried to just send and use his power to remedy the situation. Father, I pray right now we would be a humble people. And we would say, God, here I am, imperfect. I've made a lot of bad decisions, and God, I'm done trying to handle my business, and I need you to handle my business. God, I need you to rectify the mistakes that I've made that I've just been digging myself into a deeper ditch trying to get out of. Father, I pray this week that until we all meet again and we continue down the story of David in this rough, rough season of life, Father, I pray that people would marinate on your word. I pray that your word would come alive to them. I pray that they would look to it. They would seek help. And they will, I know they will find you in it. Father, we as your church are in your hands. Now, God, I, I just pray for a blessing. I pray for help. I pray for honesty. 
Father, I pray that if spouses need to have conversations, spouses will have conversations. I pray if victims need to have counseling, they will have counseling. Father, I just pray for new life. New life to take place right now in this place. New life to fall afresh and anew on the people of God, that if they will turn to you, if they will turn from their wicked ways, and if they will call on the Lord, they will see what you are waiting and ready to do for them. Father, thank you. Thank you for this new season. I pray that we would be responsible to what you are leading us to do in it. I thank you, and I praise you. And in Jesus' name, the people of God said, amen, 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 amen. God bless you. Um, if, if you need